I don't want to die here because it costs too much. Jesse Youngme told me that years ago, and he got his wish. He was in Thailand when he went to be with the Lord. It costs too much. How much does it cost to die here? What does a funeral cost in Illinois? Well, according to uh, Funeralocity, a traditional full-service burial can run from $6,000 to over $13,000, averaging about $9,000. Now, that includes basic funeral home fees, embalming, a visitation and funeral service, procession, committal, and a $3,500 casket. I don't believe that includes a gravesite, an opening and closing, and a vault if it's required. An affordable burial without embalming, viewing, or services, and a basic casket averages just over $5,000. Now, a full-service cremation averages over $6,000. And a direct cremation with no services or burial is around $2,500. So yes, it does cost a lot to die here. About half opt for cremation today, primarily due to the cost. But when it is chosen, most do not view it as simply a way to dispose of a body. No matter what's done with the body of the deceased, most do want it to be handled with respect. And they try to find a way to appropriately express their love and esteem for the one who's no longer physically with them. Now, I do have to say that I'm not a fan of turning a funeral into nothing more than a celebration of life. I still prefer an actual funeral and a burial in a cemetery. And I'd rather not be buried in a beautifully manicured memorial garden, but in a cemetery next to a church. And for years, Marilyn said that she wanted to be buried here on our church property. That's no longer possible, but we did manage to find a couple of lots in a cemetery where a church used to be. <laughs> and I think graves where believers worship, all facing east, can be a powerful expression of faith in the second coming. Facing east because Jesus said, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, it is true that God told Adam he was made of dust, and to dust he would return, and cremation simply speeds up that process. But the early Christians expected Jesus to appear at any moment, and they felt that bodies awaiting his return was a better witness to their faith in a bodily resurrection.
Now, as we noted, it does cost more to bury a body. And unlike the ancient Egyptians, we do not believe it's necessary to preserve the body in order to have an afterlife. We know that we will be given a new body when Christ returns, but a proper burial is still important to most of us. And it was apparently important to Jesus. One week before his death, Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, had anointed Jesus' head and feet with an alabaster vial of spikenard ointment valued at 300 days' wages. That'd be around $50,000 today. When Judas and the other disciples objected, Jesus said she had done it to prepare his body for burial. And he accepted it gratefully, knowing his burial was just a week away. However, as Jesus' body hung on the cross, it appeared that a proper burial was not to be his. Pilate had agreed to remove the three bodies from the crosses before the Sabbath began at sundown, But bodies of crucified criminals, if they were removed from the cross, were usually tossed on a refuge pile or left along the road to decompose in disgrace. So what would happen to the body of Jesus when it was taken down? Would it be buried or just disposed of? Well, it would appear that it would be buried. Because Isaiah had spoken of the Messiah's grave. In Isaiah 53, 9, we read, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. What does that mean? Had God made provision for the proper burial of his son by a rich man hundreds of years before his death? Was Jesus' funeral prearranged by his father? That would appear to be the case. Continuing our study in John chapter 19. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. The disciples had scattered. Jesus' friends, other than his mother, three women, and John, had been afraid to get too close the cross. Who was going to claim the body of Jesus if it could be claimed? And what would be done with it? You know, Jesus didn't even have a place of his own to lay his head when he was alive. Where would they lay his body? Well, out of the shadows 
came an unknown disciple, Joseph of Arimathea, a man who had secretly believed in Jesus. Coming from Arimathea, a town some 20 miles northeast of Jerusalem, he was apparently the rich man Isaiah spoke of, a righteous man who was awaiting the kingdom of God. Surprisingly, he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, one who had not consented to the plan to do away with Jesus, but had been afraid to speak up in his defense. He now found the courage to ask for Jesus' body. And once Pilate had made sure he was dead, he was given permission to take it. Then, as he was going to get the body, another disciple came out of the shadows, another member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus. He was the man who had come to Jesus by night, acknowledging that he was a teacher come from God, but who then left puzzled by Jesus' statement that unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He was also the man who had offered a, a weak defense in Jesus' behalf some months earlier when the priests and Pharisees were condemning him without hearing from him directly. Well, Nicodemus now boldly came forward, bringing 100 litres, or 75 modern pounds, of myrrh and aloes, enough spices to bury a king. These men... Both secret disciples before the crucifixion now found the courage to be identified as friends of Christ and risking their lives and reputations came to the cross and removed the body of Jesus to prepare it for burial. I might add here that these two prominent Jewish men did in fact lose their reputations due to this act. There's absolutely no record of them in Jewish history or in records of Jewish proceedings from the time. This has led skeptics to suggest they never existed, that the story is a fable. But the biblical record has proven itself reliable every time it's been challenged. So it's safe to assume they did exist. Apparently, they had been canceled, erased from history, because they were a blight on the Sanhedrin. But in spite of their efforts, Joseph and Nicodemus are remembered today for what they did with the body of Jesus, how they took him from the cross and wrapped his body in spices. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Where they prepared the body, it doesn't say. Since they were pressed for time, you know, Jesus had died around 3 p.m. and had to be buried by 6 p.m. when the Sabbath began, they probably prepared the body for burial right there at the foot of the cross or at the entrance to the tomb. How they prepared the body is not as clear to us as it must have been to John's original readers. He simply says it was bound in linen wrappings with the spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. 
The word for bound does suggest the body was wrapped in strips of linen. And the word linen wrappings is plural, which would seem to indicate that numerous strips were used. Most suggest, therefore, that Jesus' body was wrapped mummy style, with spices layered between the wrappings. And Lazarus' body had been prepared basically the same way. It had been wrapped apparently with straps because Jesus said, unloose him and set him free. We'd probably leave it there with a vision of a mummy if it weren't for the Shroud of Turin. Now, the Shroud of Turin, as you may know, is a sacred relic housed in Turin, Italy, that many believe to be the shroud in which Jesus was buried. It's a single piece of linen, approximately four foot wide by 12 foot long, on which both a front and back view of a man who would appear to have been flogged and crucified can be seen. How the image came to be on the cloth is a mystery that no one can adequately explain. It's not paint or stain, but appears to be more like a photographic negative, which some believe could have been caused perhaps by radiation from the resurrection itself. Numerous tests have been run on the shroud to determine its authenticity, but the results are far from conclusive. But whether it's actually the shroud of Jesus or not, it does raise some question about the procedure used to prepare Jesus' body for burial. If a shroud was used, and the word used by the other gospel writers can be translated shroud, then Jesus' body was probably laid on the lower half of the long sheet, and then the sheet was brought over his head to cover him. It's probable that strips of linen were then tied around the shroud to keep it in place and to hold the spices that were used to mask the odor of a decaying body. And as we'll discover in John's account of the resurrection, a separate face cloth covered Jesus' head. That's probably as good a picture as we can get of the actual preparation of Jesus' body. Joseph and Nicodemus, no doubt, prepared it as carefully as they could with a short time with which they had to work. And they apparently spared no expense in doing so. According to other accounts, however, the women watched all this from a distance and decided that more needed to be done. So they prepared additional spices and perfumes over the Sabbath and went to the tomb early Easter morning. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We must first get Jesus in the tomb. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus John tells us that a garden was near the place where Jesus was crucified. And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And that sounds a little strange to us. But 
Yes, they did recycle tombs in those days. After a body decayed, the bones were collected and put into an ossuary, a stone box that was usually then just set on a shelf, and another body was placed in the tomb to decay. Now, you may recall that a controversial ossuary was discovered uh, a number of years ago in Jerusalem. The inscription engraved on it says, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. So those who don't believe Jesus had any brothers, even though they are named in the Gospels, say it must contain the bones of the brother of another Jesus. The authenticity of this relic, like the shroud, is still being debated, but it does help us understand how tombs were reused in the first century. This tomb, however, was brand new. No one had yet been laid in it. According to the other gospel writers, it was owned by Joseph of Arimathea, and it had been hewn out of solid rock. He had no doubt had it built as a final resting place for his family, but was more than willing to donate it to Jesus. And since it was close by, he and Nicodemus must have agreed it would be the best place for Jesus to be laid. So Jesus was laid in a rich man's tomb, and a large stone was rolled against the entrance. Matthew tells us the stone was then sealed by the Pharisees, and guards were placed to make sure the body of Jesus stayed in the tomb. He had died, and he had been buried, and they wanted that to be the end of the story. But as we know, that's not the end of the story. So why did the gospel writers go to such lengths to tell us of the burial of Jesus? Why didn't they just tell us of his death and the resurrection? And why did Paul, when writing to the Corinthians, say, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Why was the burial included as something of first importance? Well, the burial, of course, helps confirm the fact that Jesus did actually die on the cross. But we already determined that last week. There was no doubt in the mind of the Roman soldiers or the eyewitness that Jesus had died on the cross. The water and the blood that flowed from the wound caused by the soldier's lance proved it. Could there be another reason for focusing our attention on the burial of Jesus? Could it be that it's in the burial that we can become most closely identified with Christ? In the sixth chapter of Romans, Paul writes, Therefore, we have been buried with him 
through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. In baptism, we are united with Jesus in the likeness of his death and resurrection. We close our eyes, we hold our breath, and we're buried in a watery grave. And then we are raised from the water in the likeness of a resurrection. Maybe that's why the Holy Spirit deemed it important for us to have a detailed picture of the burial of Jesus. God wants us to see ourselves with Jesus in that tomb, dead and buried. And he gave us a way to actually enter into that tomb by being buried in a watery grave. If you've not done that, if you've not been buried with Christ through immersion, I certainly encourage you to do so. And to do so as soon as possible. Baptism is the God-given way to express your faith in the fact that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross and buried them in the tomb. And he did so, so you could rise to walk in newness of life, in eternal fellowship with him. If you desire such fellowship with your creator, and with all who have shared in the likeness of Christ's death and resurrection, I invite you to publicly express your desire to do so now as we stand and sing.